Welcome back to The Bill Bennett Show, the podcast that helps you navigate through the noise and gives you thoughtful perspective, we hope, about what's happening in America at home and abroad. We try to translate Trump, uh, what's going on with the uh, Trump administration. We will stay on that task as well. A couple of comments about uh, our guest today. Uh, I will speak with Robert Padiccio uh, later in the show. He's a senior fellow and vice president for external affairs at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. That's an education outfit. It's about an article he wrote examining direct instruction as a tried and true and perhaps best method for teaching. Um, if this sounds in the weeds to you, it shouldn't. It's not in the weeds. It's about what works in education and what doesn't. And there, education's had so many newfangled approaches to it. So many new things have been tried. But what he points out is that direct instruction, the much criticized, you know, uh, teacher in front of the classroom method actually works. And... Uh, when the teacher's good and the teacher knows his stuff. So that'll be an interesting discussion. Please uh, pay attention to that. But uh, before that is Mark Krikori, and he is the man to go to on immigration. He's the executive director of the Center of Immigration Studies. Immigration has been very much in the headlines and uh, matter of discussion in Washington. So we're getting an update on where things stand. A couple of things that really stood out for me, apart from giving us a little historic context on uh, immigration uh and you'll you'll hear about that two very interesting things one in the service of explaining where we are today uh Mark Cory and I talk about 1986 uh the Reagan immigration uh, legislation that was called Simpson Mazzoli um and in it was a provision about uh, not hiring illegals uh, you could not hire illegals uh under any circumstance and um this was a strong provision and uh although some people were opposed to it it passed and the, the reason it passed and held is despite efforts of some of the immigrant groups, um, as Krikorian will explain, it was uh, held up. It was uh, the legislation to keep from hiring illegals was supported by no other than uh, than Coretta Scott King, who said that this would hurt Americans, uh, primarily African-Americans. So uh, the ban on uh, hiring illegals was not, uh, was not stopped because uh, the ban was championed by Coretta Scott King. Uh, that's the way I heard it, Claude. Is that how you heard it? Yeah, that's how that's how I heard it. He made he made it clear. And as a matter of fact, I, I talked about it earlier in the interview and restated it later in the interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's very interesting. And then he pointed out how times have changed. Uh, silence, relatively, or uh, just not much punch to you know the Black Caucus or to the protection of uh, the rights of uh, minority communities of um, of already American citizens uh, in the current immigration debate, at least. When you talk uh, to the Democrats, the second thing that I'd like folks to think about, and this goes beyond the scope of the interview with Mark, but it came up. He says that immigration trumps all for the Democrats, for the liberals. Immigration's number one. Um, primus inter pares, first among equals, um, that it's stronger than the environmentalist stuff. It's stronger than the uh, labor movement stuff. It's stronger even than big feminism, which I thought was in charge. He said, nope, nope, it's uh, it's immigration. Uh, number one, it's the number one thing. And uh, the, he said, as an example, some provisions about uh, sexual trafficking that um, have been proposed that might have interfered with the, quote, flow of immigrants. And they were defeated, uh, these provisions, because uh, they interfered with the flow of immigrants. Uh, and um, is that number one? Is that the thing that uh, is at the top of the list for liberal Democrats? If so, Claude, I ask this of you first, um, what is it for conservatives? What's number one? Is it immigration? We know when Trump campaigned, it was a huge issue, and the wall is still a big issue. Is it uh, immigration? Is it guns? Is it uh, First Amendment, uh, religious liberty? Uh, is it abortion? Um, for conservatives, what's at, what's at the top of the heap? What's the primus inter pares? What's the one issue that uh, dominates? Any guess there, Claude? Any, Gosh, any I, don't, I, I don't know. I don't know what the top issue yeah. would be. And I left one out for Republicans. The economy, the economy, right. um, it certainly isn't for the Democrats, but for Republicans, um, you know, it was like, I think that was the first thing out of Trump's mouth for the most part, wasn't it? Was, uh, you know, we're going to make America great again. And that means making the economy strong again. Um, listen to that interview with Mark and you'll see this uh, pop up and uh, I'd be interested to hear from you all about what you think is the king of the hill. Uh, if you disagree with Mark about that being immigration, being the king of the hill for, for Democrats, what's the king of the hill for, uh, for Democrats and then what's the king of the hill issue uh, for Republicans? Uh, a couple other things I just want to rant about. This is, this is the part of the podcast we call the rant, the Bennett rant. 
Uh, lots of reports of uh, White House and chaos. Uh, Hope Hicks is leaving. This is the trusted advisor to Trump, who's White House communications director. Uh, tension between Ivanka, among Ivanka, well, Ivanka Jared versus uh, General Kelly. The whole question of security clearances there. Uh, other problems uh, in the White House. Uh, Trump is uh, fuming at Jeff Sessions and doing so in public. And, you know, I've been pretty much a defender of Trump. I do not think you should attack and criticize your colleagues publicly. I do not think that's good policy or a good idea. And uh, it's de- deeply demoralizing. And it shows division where you don't want to don't want to show it. And he's, you know, referring to him as Mr. Magoo and saying, you know, the things he's doing are so bad, they're incredible. And um, I think that's a mistake. I don't know whether the White House is in chaos. There's always a lot of, you know, movement in the White House, especially after the first year. Uh, it may, there may be, but we'll see how, we'll see what happens there. Uh, the policy deliberations continue, however. Uh, the president, uh, you know, another meeting, this was uh, on Wednesday, a meeting with uh, congressional leaders on guns. He said, hey, are you guys terrified of the, petrified of the NRA? Some very strong talk. And, uh, you know, he's got this independence, this independent streak in him. And, um, you know, he went around the table and said, don't be afraid of the NRA. I'm not. Uh, <laughs> it was quite remarkable. Let's talk about the NRA in the context of uh, the schools. Just let me give you my summary view. I'm kind of with Trump on uh, hardening schools. Um, a lot of, most of these shootings take place in gun-free zones, and so arguably they shouldn't be gun-free. Now, whatever the merits, to try to focus the school shooting debate, a Douglas High School debate on guns, um, won't work because there were so many other screw-ups. There's so many other things you have to deal with first, um, which is the breakdown of the communications or wrong communications. You know, the, the this guy was not white-flagged. Uh, he should have been put into counseling. He should have been the police should have been alerted to a problem. Maybe he should have been arrested. Uh, I don't know. Um, seems to me there were grounds to arrest him, plenty of grounds. The security guard didn't go in the school. Maybe other security guards and other cops didn't go in because they didn't have body cameras. That's the latest report. FBI didn't follow up with uh, its uh, leads. I mean, it was just a mess. You're not going to get to the whole assault weapon thing because anybody looking at situations says there were so many foul-ups. Um, they got to be the main reason this problem took place, this catastrophe, this slaughter, this massacre took place. They're going to be the, uh, uh, that's going to be what everybody points to. Uh, this police chief is in trouble. Um, saying he did an amazing job was a big mistake. But uh, you see what I'm getting at, Claude. You don't get to the merits of the gun debate, if you will, because there were so many other non-gun issues that uh, made it clear um, that there was uh, mess up after mess up after mess up uh, leading up to this catastrophe. Right. And uh, even so, um, as you pointed out, it's not just a, a gun debate issue. I mean, that's one of at least three layers of the whole um of the whole situation, really, and uh, uh, to make it just about that one thing, I think, like I said, denies or at least ignores uh, some other um, uh, angles that you can go about. Where I think all three should be on the table, all three or four, all things should be on the table. When what you are the three or four? As you I see think, them. I think when you when you, I think there is a, a debate that, that goes with guns, with bump stocks, with semi-automatic weapons, with AR-15s. Should they be on the streets? I think that that's a vi- viable debate that should be had. Um, when talking about gun control, I also think mental health issues, uh, that that's a, a whole different uh, a yeah. story. That's an angle yeah. to it. I also think, I mean, we, we talk about it, you know, even in, in the scope of terrorism, when it comes to if you see something strange, say something. We saw in this case where someone saw something strange or noticed something strange and they said something and it still didn't end um uh well uh and so how how do you how do you take a a, if you see something say something uh uh approach and 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 make it mean something all right and then also there's a different angle as far as protecting schools i mean what does that mean in schools should teachers be armed should there be armed guards metal detectors and i mean you know as far as that goes bill with the schools how how would you suggest protecting schools or what are some of the ways we should look at what are the different angles or dynamics in, in in protecting schools i noticed they have metal detectors in dc schools do they not oh yeah absolutely and and yeah. even in, uh, once the school hours are up and you know i'm in there with the best fans foundation and mrs bennett doing programs we got to go through the metal detectors you know everything yeah. that we bring in has got to go through 
Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a local read and a local decision. The general point about arming teachers is fine, provided one, you know, does it carefully. A. B. You don't force people to do it. People volunteer to do it. C. Combine it with my old, old idea when I was Secretary of Education, which is to get a lot of former military into the schools. Unions opposed me on that, but I still think it's a good idea. Former military, people know how to handle guns, uh, used to dealing with guns, and um, make it so there are five or six or seven people in a school that uh, have access to uh, to firearms in that school. But, um, you know, first of all, the breakdowns of the system, just don't let the system break down. I have clear orders. I thought since Columbine, uh, the, the rule was in the police departments, uh, you know, you don't stand around outside while somebody's shooting inside. You go in, you know, because you risk your life so that students don't have to risk theirs. Uh, that's the job. And... Um, I think that was just a real mess up. But, yeah, I, I don't object to this notion, provided you don't dragoon teachers into arming themselves. They'll ask for volunteers. And uh, you don't get volunteers, then maybe more security officers. Also, something that hasn't been pointed out, I think, Claude, is that these schools are too big. Some of these schools are just too big. What are there, 3,500 mm-hmm. kids in this mm-hmm. school? Mm-hmm. And that makes it hard to manage. Um, I just wonder whether the, you know, the schools have to be that big. I don't think they do. Maybe they operate better if they're not uh, not quite so big. Uh, anyway, uh, those are my thoughts. Uh, if you see something, say something, but then follow up when it comes to mental health. Follow up for the FBI. Follow up and have a good plan for the police. Uh, don't have your guys standing around outside. Uh, and, yeah, uh, harden the target a little bit. Uh, in terms of the gun debate, I think it's a perfectly fine debate to have, and um, we should have it. I'm not expert on this. It seems in some ways, you know, you look at the AR-15, say, do we really need that? Do civilians really need that? Gun people tell me, well, the distinction between an AR-15 and a regular hunting rifle is just not that hard a distinction. Um, I'm not expert enough to know about that. But uh, it looks like the president has everything on the table, and I think that's fine. Uh, if that makes some people nervous, that's okay. You know, one other thing. Did you have any thoughts on uh, st- stores like Walmart and Dick's raising the minimum age to purchase a gun to 21? Uh, Dick's saying that they're not going to sell any more semi-automatic assault rifles. Yeah, it's private sector. They can make whatever decisions they want. There'll be ramifications. Um, and, um, you know, but they that's private sector. They can sell what they want, stock what they want, seems to me. And I'm sure they will be uh, criticized by some and praised by others for this. Do you have a thought? No, no, no. I, right, yeah. I, I agree right along. I mean, it's, it's what happens. Yeah. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. All right, let's turn our attention to immigration. We are very fortunate to have joining us Mark Krikorian. Mark is the executive director of the Center of Immigration Studies. He is the man uh, to talk to and listen to on these things. Uh, happily, a lot of people on the Hill uh, listen to him. Not so happily, not everyone on the Hill listens to him. I wish they did. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be here. I want to talk about DACA, what's going on, what the latest is, uh, Trump and the Hill. But let's go back. Uh, Can you tell us where we are vis-a-vis where we were? I was in the Reagan administration, 86. That was the time of Simpson-Mazzoli, correct? That was the big immigration thing that was going to solve it forever. I, I think that was the hope. I wasn't paying much attention to it. I was doing other things, uh, doing education, the cabinet. But I, if that's a landmark, let's talk about it. Help help us place the present in terms of things that happened in the past. Yeah, I think the experience of the 1986 bill and the, you know, the, the aftermath of it, to this day, casts a shadow on the whole immigration debate. Because um, the 1986 bill was a result of about five years of legislative back and forth wow. after a commission, presidential commission headed by uh, Father Hesburg, Theodore Hesburg, uh, president of Notre Dame. Um, oh my, you know, as, uh, I think Andy Ferguson said there was a time when you could not have a national commission without Ted Hesburgh. Yes, exactly. And he right. was the head of this one. And <laughs> okay. they, they, they made uh, recommendations. The most important one that ended up in the legislation was to combine an amnesty for people who were already established here illegally with a ban on hiring illegal aliens in the future. Because until the 1986 bill, it was explicitly legal to hire illegal immigrants. So the point was, clean up, tie up the loose ends from the past, and going forward, 
we would have a much smaller problem because we would, uh, you know, be turning the magnet of jobs off that attracts illegal immigrants. Well, the amnesty happened because that was up front. The enforcement didn't. Okay. Sp- you know, sporadically there were things that happened, but basically it petered out uh, under, you know, administrations of both parties. And so that experience of betrayal to this day colors the whole debate. And when I say betrayal, I mean that. It wasn't just, I mean, there were some people who probably did honestly intend to follow through on enforcement, and it just ended up petering out. But the, you know, Senator Kennedy and the National Council of La Raza knowingly agreed to the deal um, with the intent to Welsh on it as soon as the amnesty was finished. And I say that because in 1990, just a few years after the bill had passed, basically everybody had been amnestied or was most of the way through the pipeline by that point. Kennedy, along with Senator Hatch, introduced a bill to repeal the central bargain. In other words, to make it legal again to hire illegal immigrants. And the National Council of La Raza issued a report to that effect, authored by Cecilia Munoz, who was president, who later became President Obama's domestic policy advisor and in charge of immigration for the Obama administration. So this wasn't an accident. This was the point. Um, they failed in formally repealing the ban on hiring illegals. I, interestingly enough, they were stopped by Coretta Scott King who said, no, you know, we need to do this to protect American workers. Wow, How really? things have changed, you know? Really interesting. Yep. But even though the ban on hiring illegal immigrants stayed on the books, technically it was uh, essentially ignored. And we ended up we're going from a total of 5 million illegals in 30 years ago, 3 million of whom got amnesty, to 11 or 12 million illegal immigrants today. And so, like I said, that bait-and-switch, um, that uh, experience of, um, as the Popeye character says, I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. Right. Um, that experience is the reason George Bush's push for amnesty failed, the Gang of Eight push for amnesty failed, and is one of the real stumbling blocks for the much smaller effort to amnesty uh, the people with DACA or maybe even a broader but still narrow amnesty for dreamers. This is, this current debate is a smaller debate. It's a smaller bore. Right, is yeah, right? The, because the number of people with the DACA itself, um, in other words, the work permits from that program that President Obama unlawfully decreed, is now about 700,000 people. President Trump expanded it as a, in an attempt to sort of create a sweetener for the Democrats, to one, an estimated 1.8 million, which would include people who didn't apply for DACA when they could have, and maybe people who aged into it, you know, in the subsequent years. Um, but still, even if it were the maximum 1.8 million, you know, given that we have 11 to 12 million total illegals, it's still, you know, a relatively small share of the illegal population. But, Mark, it still feels a little, or sounds a little... Uh, like bait and switch again, if of I'm course. hearing hearing it right. Yeah. The, substitute. Well, you you, do, you can do it better than I can. So, but but substitute. What we'll take the DACA, the recognition of DACA or the citizenship for DACA, and we'll pay you Tuesday in terms of wall fence, uh, e-verify, whatever else. Exactly, about. and um, the that's why the administration, in its um, preferred plan, the one that Senator Grassley offered that was also voted down, uh, said, you know, they didn't want promises or authorizing money. They wanted a trust fund of money that was actually appropriated by Congress and then put aside for the administration to use. Nonetheless, the, the, uh, the other versions of the DACA deal that Senator Flake and Senator McCain and Senator Schumer and other people, there were several different iterations of it, they all were Basically, you know, I'll gladly enforce the border on Tuesday for an amnesty today. Uh, and okay. there's simply no reason, they have no credibility. There's no reason to believe that they will follow through. And so this time, I mean, last time, what it amounts to is we had to, tr- we trusted them. 
and they betrayed that trust. This time, they're going to have to trust us. And last time was 86, is that right? Yes. I mean, there have been some interim, smaller kind of technical amnesties, but there hasn't been this kind of uh, sweeping amnesty uh, since 1986. All right. Let's look at uh, present day, then, uh, uh, the configuration from the White House perspective uh, of, of what you just mentioned, Grassley Graham, uh, uh, other other uh, provisions. I know Cotton has a, a plan. Is it Cotton Purdue? Yeah, uh, uh, on DACA wait, though. It's not on DACA. Right. Has, right. Nothing to do with DACA. Well, let's let's stick to the DACA. Is the White House plan different from Grassley Graham? Is it better? The with the Grassley bill. Um, Senator Graham is on something else, Lindsey Graham. This is the Grassley bill, which has a bunch of Republican senators, Cornyn and others behind it, was um, developed in cooperation with the White House. So it's basically, it is the White House bill. The, okay. That's in the Senate, though. The, the version of the bill that's in the House, sponsored by Congressman Goodlatte, who's the head of the Judiciary right, Committee, yeah. it tracks the same... Um, pillars, the White House called them, the four points they wanted addressed, but does it much better, quite frankly, because the White House and Senator Grassley fig- realized they needed to get 60 votes, and so they tried to come up with something that would be more palatable to the Democrats. It turns out I don't think there's any way to come up with anything that the Democrats would agree with in the House. Even even you only need nine of them, and even nine of them won't go along with it. So there are four parts to what the White House wanted. First is amnesty for the DACAs, and the version in the Senate, and this is something the White House promoted, actually went beyond DACA, more than double the number of people uh, who, wanted, who have DACA. The House bill is just people with DACA. The second element the president wanted was enforcement, obviously. The, the wall being most... Wait a minute. On, on the first one, White okay. House wants 1.8 1. 1. 8 million. The House wants the seven Just the 700,000. That's exactly. the good light bill. I think I was thinking when I said Grassley Graham, I was thinking back to the Justice Department issues. Never mind. Right. Sorry. That's all right. These the, guys uh, get their fingers in a lot of pies. Well, yeah, and that's the way it is when you're a senator. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So the second pillar of what the president wanted was enforcement. Obviously, the wall is the most prominent thing. Funding, actual funding for the wall, he doesn't need authorization. He has that. He just needs money to build it. Um, And both the Grassley version in the Senate and the version in the House provide that. What the House bill did, though, that makes it better is it includes lots of other important enforcement measures um, uh, targeting sanctuary cities, for instance, mandating e-verify, that's the online system. Yeah. So when you hire somebody, you actually check whether they really are who they say they are. Yeah. Um, and then the third pillar, the third element that the White House insisted on, was uh, limiting chain migration. In other words, the migration of uh, subsequent family members yeah. sponsored by earlier immigrants. And then the fourth thing was getting rid of the visa lottery, diversity visa lottery, where we give up 50,000 green cards basically to, you know, at random to people around the world. Right. And there's a logic, the rationale to it. It's not just horse trading where they said, okay, one from column A, one from column B. If you're going to amnesty, you know, 700,000 or even worse, 2 million, close to 2 million illegal immigrants, that amnesty is going to have consequences. There's going to be fallout. The first thing is it's going to incentivize future illegal immigration. You're sending sure. the message you can get away sure. with it. Sure. So you need these enforcement elements. They're integral to it. It's not just horse trading. But also those legalized immigrants eventually are going to become citizens and sponsor their relatives. Yeah. And so you need to limit that. That's what the chain migration part is about, is to limit the chain migration consequences, the downstream consequences. And then finally, the getting rid of the lottery is necessary just on its own. It has nothing to do with chain migration. And it's just it's a stupid program we should get rid of. But it matters here because if you're amnestying close to 2 million people, that's increasing legal immigration yeah. by that much. And you need to have some kind of offset, you know, a pay for, as it were, of reducing it 
elsewhere. Yes, I understand. So the the deal holds together pretty well. I just was disappointed that the White House didn't do a better job of explaining why all of those pieces are necessary. You know why they okay. in, why they connect yeah, yeah. to each other. Now it still wouldn't have passed the Senate, honestly, but. You know, part of politics is persuasion, and you have to make your case. And yeah, I think they could have done a better job of that. Pretty straightforward, as you just did. If right. you're going to double it to, to almost two million, and then these people become citizens, then you're you're inviting more chain migration. Exactly. You're inviting more. Yeah. Uh, by the way, those last two features that you mentioned, chain migration, is a lottery. Are they part of the House plan? Yes, they are. Um, okay. And the difference is the Senate plan, the one that that White House. Um, preferred preferred for the Senate anyway. They're in favor of the House bill, too. But the Senate bill was looser because what it did is it grandfathered in all four million people on the waiting list for those chain migration categories. Wow. There's four million of them, and they haven't applied. They have been promised nothing. They just basically have, like, the number you get at the deli counter to be waited on. Um, it would grandfather them all in, again, as a sweetener to Democrats, what the House bill does is it only grandfathers people who are one year out from getting their number called, which makes sense. That's a prudent measure, but it doesn't. It just gives the application fees back to everybody else and just kind of abolishes the whole thing. Yeah, uh, and uh, not to be crass, but uh, the other consequence of two million more citizens and then more chain migration is there's political dimension here, right? Of course, yeah. I mean, look, they're going to be voting Democrat. And the the DACA people, since most of them grew up here, I mean, some of them came as teenagers, and I don't know if that really counts as growing up here, but a lot of them did come pretty young. They're likely to get, they're very likely to get citizenship when they can, whereas the 1986 amnesty, those were mostly adults, and even today, only half the people who got that amnesty ever got citizenship. Um, so a lot of them will get citizenship in this amnesty, and they're, you know, they're overwhelmingly going to vote Democrat. That was one of the reasons that the um, president's proposal in the, gra- in the Senate bill stretched out the period of time before they could actually become citizens to be more like, I think it was 12 or 13 years um, where they'd be in like a provisional status for several years, that kind of thing. And then they'd get a green card. Then they'd have to wait a certain number of years, I guess. Um, yeah, my thinking is if you're going to amnesty people, just rip, a, rip off the Band-Aid and get it over with. Okay. I, just a digression. Um, I, I always think when I digress, I'm, mistake, I'm making a mistake. There was a great line a professor taught me. Mrs. Frankfurter used to say of Justice Frankfurter, First, Felix digresses from his text, and second, he returns to it. Okay. <laughs> you know, I, just bring me back if I get right. lost. But on that, they will vote Democrat, sure. And I know that Hispanics, American citizens, is equivalent to, you know, two million who are about to be legalized. Not the same thing, though there's a fair amount of overlap in a Venn diagram. But I was watching with interest... Um, uh, Governor Abbott in Texas, who proudly boasts 40% support from Latinos, Hispanic Americans um, in Texas. Um, th- th- that's, a pretty, that's a pretty good feat for a Republican. Unique to Texas? Uh, well, yes and no. Um, mostly yes, I think, because Texas has a very conservative political culture, and newcomers will not only assimilate to the language uh, of the place they move to, they assimilate to the mores more generally. Mm-hmm. And they're simply more likely to become Republicans if they're in a strong Republican place like Texas. But, look, 40% is still less than half. I mean, yeah, you sure can't is. make that up in volume. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah, right. And if so, you double it or triple it, yeah, it's uh, still So that's 40%. not an argument yeah, yeah. about immigration policy going forward. That's an argument about doing better outreach to our fellow citizens who happen to be from Latin American backgrounds. I'm all for that. But that's different from taking in, you know, more people in the future and expecting it not to have political consequences. Okay, thank you. Let's go back to text, and I want to be considerate of your time, but I'm not moving it as fast as I wanted to to keep on schedule. I Um, can talk till all your listeners are falling asleep. Don't worry about that. (laughs) Okay. I used to do that my kids. My kids would say, I can't sleep. I said, Dad's got a speech he's going to give next week. Would you like to hear it? Oh, the yawns would start. There you go. There you go. Um, Okay. 
So the Goodlatte legislation is preferable. It's a it's a better bill. Yes. The White House tied itself more to the Grassley, thinking, hoping it could get six. Well, in in the Senate they did because that's they were dealing. That was with the it bill. First. That was but the now vehicle. that it right. failed, they actually are uh, putting pressure on the House leadership to up their efforts in trying to get the Goodlatte okay. bill passed through the House. Okay, but if it does, there's not a chance I'll make it in the Senate, right? No, no, there isn't. But, you know, that's the way you do things. You, uh, I mean, the 1986 bill took six years of passing okay, one House sure. and not the other. So passing the House, the Goodlatte bill being passed by the House is not a waste of time, but, no, it would not be approved by the Senate. Okay, but then, then, let's, then let's get to the core of it, or at least what a lot of people think is the core of it. Whatever the merits of the Goodlatte bill, coming out of the House, going to the Senate, not getting 60 votes, at least in the first run or first, second, or third run, uh, do we believe that, in fact, there is an interest on the part of Democrats to getting a bill passed? Or are they, you know, the, it's cliche, I guess, I'd like to unpack it. They're, they don't want to deal because they want to make it an issue for November. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it's sort of a yes and no. The Democrats would be happy to get green cards for the DACA people and the Dreamers if they didn't have to give up anything in exchange. So, so you know, that part is yes. They would love to have a deal on their terms. And the... But the, you know, the compromise or the negotiation they engaged in over the past couple of months really wasn't in good faith because they're not willing to give up anything at all meaningful in order to get that deal. And Does that mean, excuse me, let me interrupt just because yeah. I'm, I'm taking notes. Does that mean the, the three of the four, amnesty they'll take, but enforcement, that is wall, limiting chain migration, uh, getting rid of visa lottery, they won't take any of those. The they? lottery and chain migration, they won't. They won't even talk about the okay. the enforcement, the border stuff. They will kind of pretend. Oh, yeah. yeah, we'll give you a little money for one year, you know, and then of course the next year they just welsh on it and they wouldn't give them any more money, you know, that sort of thing. So that's right. One of those guys said he'd get a spade and start digging, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. what uh, Luis Gutierrez said. Yes, I'll okay. go and you know get take bricks and lay bricks myself or something like yeah. that. But again. That's the amnesty today in exchange for a wall five years from now. You know, so what about E-Verify and the Democrats? The interesting point is that the White House decided not to push E-Verify in their, you know, in the outline that they offered, which turned into the Senate bill. And their thinking was not that they are not uh, not for it; they want to mandate E-Verify, but their thinking was that the Senate Democrats would be more resistant to mandating E-Verify than they would to uh, trimming back chain migration. The thinking is that the chain migration is people aren't here yet, whereas E-Verify mandate, even if it were just for new hires, would affect illegal immigrants who are already settled here. You know, if they change jobs, lost jobs, or whatever it is, they'd be frozen out. I don't know that that was the correct decision. It clearly didn't help much because the Democrats still voted against it. But that was their thinking. The Goodlatte bill does have E-Verify in it. Where's the Coretta Scott King? uh, Remind the listeners, the guy never knew this. Coretta Scott King stopped uh, last time, right? uh, uh, And that was the problem is that was 28 years ago now. And the Democratic Party has become far more radical on immigration than it was back then. I mean, even President Obama, when he well before he was president, said things about uh, you know the need to limit illegal immigration and what have you that right that now would get him thrown out of the Democratic Party. But the Congressional Black Caucus doesn't seem to be speaking out either. They correct? are completely in thrall to the hard left on this issue. They wow. they no longer wow. in any way represent the economic interests of their constituents. I mean, it's wow. remarkable. But immigration reopened, essentially open borders, de facto open borders, has now become an immutable value uh, of the left. They will sacrifice anything, feminism, gay rights, free speech, the interests of black workers, any, they will sacrifice anything uh, if it conflicts with uh, open immigration. Really? Open immigration is king? It sure seems to be.
I thought Big Mama was big, big, fem, big feminism was king. Yeah, well, then, you know, really? So we're importing lots of people who aren't exactly feminists. Uh, you know, these attempts to crack down on... <laughs> yes, that's true. These attempts to that's crack true. down on FGM, for instance, you know, female genital mutilation, which is a big okay. feminist oh, cause. But, yeah. uh, you know, uh, the left uh, okay. bridles at efforts to, wow. um, to you know, ban uh, FGM on the part of immigrants. I mean, it's just... There's nothing right, more important well, than open immigration to the left. Yeah. All right. And a one-on-one uh, open immigration beats, yep. beats the feminism. Trumps and everything, I, as it were. I, I knew it wasn't the Sierra Club anymore, but I thought it was the Me Too movement. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll take it. Mark, your consideration of your time, what what ought to be? I, I take it your good lad is good enough for you, not, not, a, not, not exactly what you'd like, but pretty good. Right? Yeah. No, I mean, it's a compromise, but it's a pretty good compromise, in my opinion. Yeah. No, I'm, because I think I'm for amnestying the DACAs. I mean, I don't like 800 the, or one. No, no, just the DACAs, the, just the 700,000. 700, I mean, and the yeah. reason there is, look, Obama did this unlawfully, but they signed up in good faith for this thing. They were lawfully hired by companies, and it's a mess this administration has inherited. Look, we're conservatives. You've got to deal prudently with okay. the reality you inherit. But it has to have these damage control measures that I uh, talked about. And um, if it doesn't, then I, it's unwise to go through with it. It just is. And I don't, okay. you know, as far as predictions go, yes, I don't think anything's nice. going to happen this year. I think we're going to have to wait for the elections and also the program actually ending because the attempts by the president to end it have been tied up in court and it's going to end up going right. to the supreme court so only once there's a deadline and people start losing their work permits and the either the democrats realize you know they they either fall short in november and realize they have to settle for something less than they want or you know maybe the republicans lose the house that's entirely possible and the Democrats get together with their fellow travelers, Republicans in the Senate, and pass something bad, at which point the president will have to decide what he wants to do. So my point is, we're not going to know, I think, until next year how okay. this ends up being resolved. But uh, but we could get some resolution, un- unlikely this year, but keep plugging, keep pushing. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Some version. Of course, we'll see what kind of House and what kind of Senate we have, huh? Yeah, that's going to be a key thing, and it's not just the makeup of the House and Senate, but also specifically whether the Democrats feel that they didn't, you know, that they fell short. I mean, if the Republicans hold the House, they're going to lose seats. There's no question about that. But if they hold enough seats that they keep control of the House, and if they pick up a couple Senate seats, which is also possible, um, the Democrats, enough of them might figure, you know, okay, we can't wait for two more years and then hope that, you know, Kamala Harris will win the presidency yeah. or something like that. Maybe we'll have to cut a deal now. Um, so we'll see. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, okay. with high hopes for the future, I uh, make no predictions. Uh, did you have m- more confidence in this president? I know, you know, you, I, I read you about Trump and, you know, you, you're, you're, you're thinking evolved. You're, you're, I, don't, I don't want to characterize you were dubious and still dubious on some things. But do you think... Correct me if I'm wrong, but do you, do you think he has more resolve on this? Yeah, I uh, mean, that encourages uh, you. It seems to, say, to yeah. me he does. Yeah, I mean, I was dubious and I remain dubious, um, but uh, especially considering I think his shameful treatment of uh, the attorney general. But um, on immigration, I expected that he might have gone squishy and sold out sooner. And even though he says things that are quite disturbing sometimes, like during that meeting, what was it, a month ago now, yeah, where they yeah. televised the whole meeting at the White House, he yeah. was saying terrible stuff. He was, I mean, it was Kevin McCarthy, the um, one of the White House, uh, the House leadership people, he had to jump out of his seat and try to correct the president when it seemed like he was giving away the barn. But yeah. the fact is, even though he says stuff like that, when push comes to shove, he doesn't end up actually you know, right. giving away the farm. And right. so, so yeah, I've actually been pleasantly surprised at his resolve and consistency on this issue, and I hope it continues. Yeah, I do too. we got to leave it there, but we're going to have you back. Please come back soon Happily. so we can get updated, and, and we appreciate it very much. It's Mark Krikorian, and we're delighted to have Mark with us. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. 
Robert Pandisio joins us now, and I want to talk about this article that he just wrote that I read. Now, I'm an enthusiast about uh, Pandisio's work generally, and particularly a piece like this. It's also been said that I've been, since I've spent 45 years of my life in education, I'm a, you know, I'm a guide in the wood. I'm a woodsman in this forest. I know this stuff. But I I don't think you have to be have a lot of experience to figure this one out and to see its importance and relevance, not just to someone whose work has been in education, but to every American. It seems to me this is important. And Robert, I, I welcome you back to the podcast. Help me make this clear to the audience why this matters to, to, to really to everybody who's listening. This is about the instruction of our children. Let me just let me just read the introduction that uh, caught my eye, and then I read the whole article, and then we'll talk to Robert. Did you hear the one about a curriculum with 50 years of research that actually demonstrates its effectiveness? Well, there's a new meta-analysis in the peer-reviewed journal, the Review of Educational Research. It looks at over 500 articles, dissertations, and research studies, and documents a half-century of strong, positive results for a curriculum, regardless of school, setting, grades, student poverty status, race and ethnicity, and across subjects and grades. Ready for the punchline? That curriculum is called Direct Instruction. Now, why is this important, Robert? And again, help me translate to the general public why this matters so much. Thank you. Yeah, no, I'm I, like you. I like your term, uh, a woodsman. So I'm I'm a fellow lumberjack in that regard, and uh, I've spent a lot of time in the curriculum woods. And and look, a lot of folks in education, we tend to worship at the altar of the shiny new thing, whether it is you know education technology, the flipped classroom, blended learning. I mean, you know, it's a jargon machine. Direct instruction is is as, as old fashioned as it gets. Uh, it is even a literally a scripted curriculum where, where the teacher is told what to say. Uh, it's been around since, as I like to joke, since slightly after the earth cooled, and all it does is get good results. Uh, but but because it is not the shiny new thing, Dr. Bennett, we, we just think, oh, well, that's that old-fashioned stuff. Nobody takes that seriously. Well, there's now 50 years of, of data and analysis that says, hey, maybe you should take this seriously if you're really serious about doing what's best for kids. Let's talk about, that's a great start. Let's talk about direct instruction. Give, give us a picture. What does it look like? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's 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 very old school. Uh, it's important to distinguish at the outset from from what uh, the, the the folks who wrote this meta analysis that we're talking about. They distinguish between capital D direct instruction and small d uh, direct instruction. A small d direct instruction is just what your teacher used to do when he or she stands in front of the class and explains to you how to do something. But but what, what this analysis about is, is about is a, a, a series of curriculum uh, textbooks, if you like, called Direct Instruction, capital D, capital I, that was uh, pioneered about 50 years ago by a gentleman by the name of Siegfried Engelman. Uh, I believe he was out in the University of Oregon at the time. And, and um, these are textbooks uh, like Reading Mastery, I think, is the one that uh, you might know your, your kids might use in school if you're lucky enough to go to a DI school. And when I say it's a scripted curriculum, it literally tells the teacher what he or she is to say. It's most commonly known, I believe, for reading, but there is a math curriculum, there's a history curriculum series. Um, but what makes it controversial, Bill, is that teachers, and I say as an ex-teacher, we generally don't like to be told what to say. You know, we, we, we like to write our own lessons and engage kids. Well, the theory of direct instruction is, no, that's not what teaching is. Here's the lesson, just deliver it. And the soul of teaching is not preparing the lesson, it's delivering the lesson. And, and then all the stuff that you do after that, looking at student work, uh, evaluating assessments, conferencing with kids. So, you know, they, they would argue, direct instruction uh, devotees would argue that the, that teaching starts after the lesson ends, where I think more uh, mainstream teachers might say, oh, no, 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 you're going to take away my creativity if you don't let me be the one who designs the lesson. Now, Robert, there's a, uh, there's a connection, though, between capital D direct instruction and small d direct instruction, right? I mean, they may look... Yeah, to be uh, sure. Yeah. Well, it's just a, uh, that's what we're calling small d direct instruction is just basically a, you know, a pedagogical technique, as it were. And in contrast with, say, discovery learning, uh, when you've trained as a teacher, you hear all these 
cliches and bromides, and one of my favorite ones um, is, uh, I say this dismissively, is, oh, the teacher should not be the sage on the stage, but the guide on the side. Yeah. In other words, that we're oh, supposed yeah. to stand, you know, let, let kids figure out how to get to the Pythagorean theorem, which, you know, <laughs> good luck with that. Yeah. That's, that's not <laughs> On their own. But, On their own. Inquiry-based yeah, yeah, learning or something. Yeah, right. Pythagoras died for my sins. I don't I don't need to, uh, to sit around trying right. to discover it. Right. I, I, we're having fun with it. But, I mean, there is, look, there is some wisdom to that. Uh, this is constructivism. Some some teachers, and, and there's, there's even good research that suggests that, that learning sticks more when it is, say, discovery-based. But it is also, for, for a lot of students, just a, a recipe for frustration as well. So I, I don't want to sit here and pretend that there's a right and wrong answer. I'm much more of a direct instruction guy. I was a much more DI-style teacher when I was in the classroom. But I, I don't want to suggest that people who, who, who eschew that are necessarily wrong headed, all I'm suggesting with this piece is that, hey, before you write this thing off, just understand that there's 50 years now of research that says this is really good for kids. Okay, good, good. I want to pick up on a couple of things you said there um, and then use some of the phrases I have heard and get your response to them. But first of all, you talked about the, the shiny new thing. I remember discovering, it took me a long time, I should have discovered it earlier, but I, I don't think I was, it took me till 40 years old to realize that the way educators were using the term innovative was a synonym for good and traditional was a synonym for bad. That it was enough to say of something that it was traditional, that that was a form of contumely, of, of a condemnatory utterance. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, that, no, I think that's right. And that and that innovative was a term of praise. But a thing isn't good because it's new or bad because it's old. A thing is good if it's good, and the thing is bad if it's bad, old or new, right? No, look, you're preaching to the choir on that one. And um, well, that's why I had you on. I want. I want. <laughs> Well, you know, there, there, there's something to be said for the wisdom of the ages, right? In yeah, other words, sure. we got this way for a reason. And um, I think there is a mindset, and I don't want to politicize it, but I think there's a mindset in education that it's exactly as you say. New is good, old is bad. Um, but, you know, if something works for not just 50 years in the case of direct instruction, but for 2,500 years in the case of you right. know, uh, education at large, we, we might be a little bit um, uh, uh, too quick to just worship at the altar of, of, of the new for the sake of the new. Um, again, there are others you could have on your air, Bill, who will disagree with that, but I'm, you, know, you and I are kindred souls in that regard. I want to just stay on this for a while because I think I want to make this useful to parents. Phrases they've heard uh, related to the things you have uh, said already. Student-based learning. What does that mean? Yeah, this, this gets complicated, and, and one of the big problems we have in education at large is that we don't even have a common vocabulary. So uh, typically, uh, and I don't want to say exclusively, but when I hear the phrase student-based, that's, that suggests to me things like discovery learning, uh, like student engagement. In other words, when I was taught to teach reading when I was teaching at a South Bronx elementary school nearly 20 years ago, we, we were uh, had it drilled into our heads as teachers that just about the most important thing that you could do for a student is to get him or her, quote, engaged uh, in reading. In other words, it's less important to teach them um, specific reading techniques, say phonics, etc., than it is to get them to learn to love reading. This is another one of those bromides, like guide on the side. So so what does that mean? You, and this is going to drift a little bit away from direct instruction, forgive me. Uh, but what that means is that what students really need to become better readers is to, to read, quote, authentic texts, end uh, quote. They need to be engaged by their reading. The stuff that they read has to reflect their interests and their lives. Um, you, know, you can't just uh, uh, spoon-feed kids a curriculum and expect them to fall in love with reading. So, you know, a DEI person would look at that and say, well, that's just ridiculous. Um, you know, there's certain things that, that, that kids need to know. There's certain reading techniques they need to learn, and we're going to march through those progressions. I think uh, Engelman has a famous lesson sequence uh, called Teaching Kids to Read in 100 Lessons or some such. So, so um, DI enthusiasts would, would look at all that guide on the side and authentic uh, stuff and just say, well, no, that's nonsense. Kids are more alike than, than they are unalike. Um, and there is a right and a wrong way, a right and a wrong sequence to teach these things. Okay. How about this one? Um, my task as a teacher is not to teach them this or that, but to teach them how to think. 
Oh, you're just you're just winding me up now, aren't you, Bill? Yeah, yeah, I'm doing this on purpose, <laughs> baiting you. Absolutely. I think I think you are. Um, yeah, but that's that's another one of those lovely homilies that just sounds so you know seductive, intuitive, and and incorrect. Um, somebody you should have on your program at some point if you haven't already is the the great cognitive scientist from the University of Virginia, Dan Willingham. Uh, everything I've learned about this, I've I've learned from him and and Ed Hirsch Jr., our mutual friend before him. But you you can't teach kids. All, all here, speaking of parents, if, if parents are uh, go to their PTA meetings or back to school night and they hear um, uh, educators in their kids' schools nattering on about 21st century skills and saying, oh, we're not here to teach any particular content. We're here so that students learn to love learning and learn to be problem solvers right. and critical thinkers. Well, you can't do that, by and large, in the absence of, of, of content. You know, you can be a critical thinker about things you know about. Um, I, I like to invoke this example, and I stole this one from Dan Willingham. There was a paper written some years ago with a provocative title, Could Steven Spielberg Manage the Yankees? And the answer is no. I mean, yeah, he's a creative genius, but he's a creative genius filmmaker. Uh, that's not a skill that yeah. you can take with you yeah. into baseball or some completely different field. So you, as a parent, you always have to kind of be on, on, on your guard about um, you know any uh, of these shortcuts, as it were, that are going to you know, take us right to critical thinking and problem solving and reading comprehension and a lifelong love of learning. It just doesn't happen that way. The way, I can't remember who said it, but I carried it around for years. I stole it from somebody. Yes, you need to learn how to learn, but the best way to start to learn how to learn is to start by learning something. Right? Yeah, I think so. And, and what's what's um, and this is you know you and I are, are older than 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 some others who are listening to us. I think folks who are our age, you know, children and grandchildren, they listen to this and they think, well, isn't this what schooling is? Isn't this how they've always done it? Um, you know, if you haven't set foot in an elementary school in twenty or thirty years, you might not recognize it anymore because there is a lot of this so-called metacognitive work going on. In other words, you're thinking about thinking instead of thinking about anything in particular. Uh, this is back to my example of teaching in the South Bronx. It's more important that kids learn to read stuff they're engaged by than, than any set curriculum. So as a result, and you know this as well as anybody, the, the, the very idea of a set curriculum, whether it's direct instruction or something else, has become one of those, um, this is not new, we don't do this anymore things that maybe we need to think twice about. But is there some place for... Um the interest of the child. Uh, I remember reading, oh, reading my Hirsch yeah. and realizing that a little bit like the Spielberg example, I was interested as a child in, believe it or not, child growing up in Brooklyn, no access to them at all, reptiles and amphibians. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so I read deeply in that area, even at a pretty young age. But that was good somehow because I knew something about something. And I yeah. knew... What was it I was I was learning, even though that wasn't part of the taught curriculum? I got into pretty yeah. good depth here. Yep, that's exactly right. I mean, I, I sometimes joke about what I call Pondicio's first law of education, which is that every good idea in teaching becomes a bad idea the moment it hardens into orthodoxy. And so either of these two poles that we're discussing, you can follow them off the edge of the cliff. Only learn what you want. Um, and then kids don't end up abroad. Background knowledge, or no, only learn what the teacher says, and then you don't have the chance to, to, to do a deep dive on reptiles. In my case, uh, I loved, uh, uh, my dad was in the airline business. I, I had a plane um, uh, fixation when I was a kid. I read everything I could get my hands on about uh, aircraft. Uh, so, so there's a sweet spot in the middle where you're recognizing the need as an educator to introduce kids to the broad world around them, you know, to get them, to, to get their nose out of the enable, so to speak, but at the same time, leaving room for them to, to discover the things that they're interested in. It's, I mean, they're, they're, it's, this should be obvious, right? And it seems to be obvious to everybody who's not a teacher. Okay, Claude, Claude wants to jump well, in. Go yeah, ahead, Claude. Professor, yeah, I think it's a fascinating He's got uh, a young one at home. They're teaching your homeschooling. About, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That we're homeschooling. I have a question. Um, so when you talk about you know uh, direct instruction and all the research says that it, that it works, is there anything that you can point to or that the research points to that talks about what makes it really good or really effective for kids? Because, again, there's so much new stuff, there's technology, things online, and obviously I guess some of that can sure. be instituted online. But what exactly is it about the direct instruction that 
makes it so effective. Yeah, this, this is a little bit of confirmation bias on my part because, you know, education research can be very, very granular. It tends to be concerned with things like effect sizes and not really look at why they, they, it might be working. It's just more binary. Um, my, my own sense, and I, I alluded to this before, if, if you ask a teacher what he or she does, they will probably describe a lot of their work as, as what I would call instructional design. You know, what am I going to teach tomorrow? How am I going to engage kids? Um, where am I going to get my readings uh, in, Etc. Um, I've written elsewhere about how uh, teachers spend an extraordinary amount of time on doing things like going online on Google and Pinterest 20, 30 hours a week, figuring out just what to teach tomorrow. Well, if you think about that, if, if that's what you view as the soul of your job, instructional design and delivery, you're doing it all yourself. That takes a lot of time away from other things that teachers could be doing. So if, you, if somebody hands you a, a curriculum, and by the way, it doesn't just have to be direct instruction, but almost any curriculum, suddenly that changes the nature of your job. You're, you're no longer spending all of your time planning instruction. You're delivering it. You're anticipating where student uh, misconceptions uh, might happen. And then you've got all this capacity to look at student work, to, to work one-on-one -on -one with students, even just to build relationships with them and their parents. There's all this higher-value stuff that you can be doing other than going on Google and Pinterest every night and saying, what am I going to teach tomorrow? So my, my, my hunch, and it's just a hunch, is, is there's some of that there, that this just changes the job of the teacher from instructional designer to instructional deliverer and then diagnostician. And, and, and that's just a much higher value uh, use of a teacher's time than just simply planning lessons. Claude, did you want to follow up? Yeah, so I was going to say that. So then that obviously puts a, a high emphasis on what curriculum is actually being taught, then correct? Sure. Yeah, yeah so absolutely right. And that's, that, you know, that uh, I think a lot of us have the idea that, oh, you know, we pretty much decided what kids need to learn. Uh, that is simply not true. Um, you know, there, there's, you see different things being taught, not just in different schools within a school district, but across the hall in the same schools. I mean, it's, it's, there, there is this ethos, I think, in teaching because the pendulum has swung so far to the teacher's job is to engage the student um, and, and a skills-driven vision of education. Oh, I need to teach kids to compare and contrast. It doesn't matter what they're comparing and contrasting. Um, the experience that a, a kid has, uh, the, the curriculum experience, as it were, can be very, very different across schools and even within schools. What about facts? Where do facts come in? Uh, is it important? Is it part of direct instruction to teach facts? Yeah, I, I'm more familiar with their reading curriculum, which is uh, you know an old basal program, as it were, than, than I am um, the, the, say their, their their history curriculum, their math curriculum. I think what you're alluding to, Bill, is is our common affection for the work of, of E.D. Hirsch Jr. And, yeah. and Core Knowledge, which which is very compatible with DI. I mean, there are a lot of schools out there that do both Core Knowledge and direct instruction. Um, and, and I think that's quite powerful. Uh, I mean, Hirsch's great insight, and I think Engelman would agree with this, is that, yes, there is a, a general body of knowledge that kids need to have to be literate. I think we, a lot of us in this work tend to separate um, um, uh, the, the, the skill, and I'm making air quotes around the, the words, the skill of reading and, and any particular body of knowledge that kids might need to master. There's this idea that those are two different things, and I invoked Dan Willingham's name before, I'll do it again. He, he would uh, say that those are not two different things, but two sides of the same coin, um, that you need the skill of, uh, of, of reading, but, but reading comprehension is really more of a function of, of, of facts, of knowledge. So to the degree that teachers don't have, have this idea that, that, that facts are negotiable or, or that it doesn't really matter uh, what I teach, uh, that, that's an idea that, that needs to, to go away. Now that's, that is separate and distinct from direct instruction, okay. but as I said before, direct instruction and core knowledge um, are, are, are quite compatible pedagogies. I want to ask you, and my last question about what a parent can do proactively uh, <clears throat> with teachers in a school, but, but first let's talk about the parent reactively following up on what we just talked about. A lot of parents um, react to, you know, asking their kids questions or hearing, you know, the child in eighth grade saying, me and Johnny, uh, you know, are going to the game. And they say, wait a minute, hasn't anybody told you it's Johnny and I are going to the game? Or yeah. or uh, do you know what the capital uh, of Kansas is, okay? Or how come you don't know where uh, Africa is or India is? 
and they yeah, and they yeah. react. They say, "Wait, well, what are they teaching you at that school?" Now, this sounds like a kind of curmudgeonly thing, or can be characterized as a curmudgeonly thing. But there are, are really a lot of parents who um, react this way. I remember one parent who told me the only daggone fact this kid knows is that the rainforest is disappearing because he, <laughs> because he's been taught it every year for fourteen yeah. years. That fact is for sure. Other than that, he doesn't know anything. Uh, I thought it was a hilarious, hilarious comment. But, but yeah, and, and go ahead. You have yeah. to, you know, factor in a little bit of, you know, back in my day. You know, yeah, like, of course, it, 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 sure. It, 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 this is this is our right as, as graybeards, right, Bill? We get to, yeah. to criticize, you know, what, what our kids and grandkids are doing in school. That, but but that, that that's notwithstanding. Uh, here's here's something that, that amazes me. You know, if you if you're a parent, uh, my and, and your child has an illness, my guess is you go on WebMD or some other website, and by the end of the day, you know everything there is to know about your child's condition, yeah. the medications, yeah. the side effects. Right. Um, I defy you to find the you know, one parent in a hundred who could do the same thing with the curriculum in their child's school, which they spend far more time on, right? I mean, this is my, my, I'm turning my child over to a school eight hours a day, five yeah. days a week, 180 days a year. Don't you think you ought to know about what he or she is learning? Uh, now, I, I don't want to be, you know, suggest that there's some nefarious reason behind this. I think we're just generally incurious because we assume it's kind of all the same. Uh, but there's a wide variety of curriculum products out there, pedagogical approaches, and and at this point, you can do maybe not the, to, to the degree of subtlety and sophistication as you can look up medications, but there are now web tools out there that parents can use to, to, to educate them, themselves more about what their kids are learning. So if you hear that your you know your child is the school is using an everyday math curriculum or uh, or or um, ready gen um, uh, reading instruction, there's websites like Ed Reports, and you can go on and learn about how well those products have been reviewed and what the research searches on them. Uh, so this is my only wish and my plea to parents is just educate yourself a little bit more about the curriculum in your child's school. And by the way, they say, well, we don't really have a set curriculum. That's a red flag, too. Why not? Because yeah. uh, I think there's good evidence that a set curriculum, um, even one that is not necessarily um, sub, uh, that is not necessarily the best, still has those really good teacher effects that I was talking about, where it just frees up teacher capacity to spend more time with children. One uh, disanalogy that raises the question uh, kind of poignantly. Talk about WebMD. So most of us start without any knowledge of what this ailment is and what it comes, where it comes from, and how to treat it. Sure, we're not professionals, but uh, you, you talk about how how we kind of trust the schools to to do it right. But the, uh, here, here's the disnout. We've all been to school. I mean, we should sort of be more expert on this, right? We're not all doctors, but we've all been to school. So why the reluctance to sort of step in and ask some tough questions? What is that about? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a fair question. And I wonder if, if it is uh, a reluctance or it is simply that taken for grantedness that I referred yeah. to before, okay. where we just assume that, you know, school is school is school and that what really matters is the teacher. And, and look, I don't want to be dismissive of that. There's good evidence that suggests teacher effects are, are enormous. Um, I'm merely encouraging parents to take that that okay. thought where it leads. It's not always what the, who the teacher is. It's sometimes what the teacher does, okay. and that has everything to do with their curriculum. Uh, and uh, la- the last thing I just want to tell you a story. I, I you know when I was Secretary of Education, I you know I, I did it as best I could. I visited a lot of schools, taught classes, which was the smartest thing I did. My wife told me to go to mm. go to school and teach, so I saw everything up close, uh, and that helped me when I was issuing reports and so on. But I didn't get the, a really big insight until after I had left and Bill Clinton became president. And I'll never forget Mike Espy, who was a House of Representatives guy, became his secretary of agriculture. And there was an E. coli scare at a restaurant chain on the West Coast. And he flew out there. And when he got there, they closed down the restaurant chain. Man, E. coli all over these burgers? No way. Nobody's going to eat one. And I thought, son of a gun. When I found out about that school in Baltimore, when I was secretary, where not one child was reading at grade level, I should have shut it down. 
Now, yep. I'm yep. a conservative, so you know we don't like this big hand, big government. But the analogy was just too too strong. You know, why why don't we shut down a school where nobody's reading at grade level and free the children? I guess that's the whole argument for for school choice, but. It's not just that there's a disagreement on methods. When people use methods that don't work, like you know, like not, not like direct instruction, which works, there's there's harm, there's damage, or there's at least lack of progress, right? Yeah, I agree with you. And look, this is this is a whole other conversation that we can and should have because, for what it's worth, I would argue those of us the, the, what the, the, what you're just describing this impulse to go in and, and shut down schools to rescue kids that's been very much with us now for the last twenty or so years. Uh, you know, the charter school movement that's yeah, come up is all yeah, is all about yeah, yeah. providing those kind of lifeboats. My criticism, frankly, and I'm I'm a member in good standing of the Ed Reform movement, but I think those of us in this movement have been a little bit too quick to simply say, and if you think about this, Bill, you're kind of almost convincing the exact same mindset. We're not curious about why that school failed. It just failed. Just close it down, send them someplace else. Doesn't that suggest, oh, all schools are the same, all we're now interested in doing, which ones are successful, which ones aren't successful. Follow that idea where it leads. What makes a school like that unsuccessful? What makes a school across the street that's having success with low-income kids, for example, what are they doing that the other school isn't doing, rather than just say, you're terrible, we're closing you, you're good, we're sending you their kids, uh, we could be a lot more sophisticated about the effects uh, that, that those schools are creating. Yeah, maybe, but after 10 years of nobody giving, reading at grade oh, level. Sure. You know, yeah. Sure, sure, right, sure. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I, I'm not, I'm not going to put it point too much, but you take my meaning, yeah, which sure is that we, 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 we tend to look at effects and not look at causes. Yeah, no, exactly right. And that brings us back to the beginning. Thank you very much, Robert Pundicio. Thank you so much. Uh, again, uh, thank you, Dr. Bennett. Great thing. And we're going to put a link up to your, to your article. We appreciate it. Thank you. I really appreciate it. All right. That's Robert Pondicio, senior fellow and vice president for external affairs at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. And that just about wraps it up for this episode. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett and like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends, and we'll catch up next week. Thank you. Thank you.